Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We are live on January 28th in the Sugar Club in Dublin City Centre. Uh, tickets are available right now on eventbrite.ie for podcasts for Palestine. They're only 15 quid and all proceeds are going to Gaza. So come along for great night's entertainment and a great cause. Hope to see lots and lots of you there. I also want to draw your attention to the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. We have no ads, we have no sponsors, and we, re- and we rely entirely on you to keep this show on the road. So if you're listening to this and you're getting something out of it, please give something back. Make 2024 the year that you try and support independent media, even if that's not the tortoiseshack. But obviously we'd love to have you come on board. So one more time, it's patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. Thanks for listening, thanks for liking, sharing, recommending, and telling people where to find us. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves, and folks, we've covered the events in Gaza, in the in the Middle East, and in all the wider area for a number of years. And one of the people who we've covered it with, probably since the outset and a few years ago now, and it's fabulous to watch her go on and see her work acknowledged across so many platforms, so many other outlets. But it's our good friend, Hannah McCarty, and she joins us again on the line from Ramallah. Hannah, it's great to speak to you. How are you? Happy New Year. Thanks for having me on, Tony. Hope you have a good New Year too. Yeah, well, we can hope it would be better. What? Um, I don't know if you... Uh, we have a um, podcast with uh, two... Uh, it's called Shrapnel with uh, Sam and, and Gareth, and it's sort of, you know, uh, from a loyalist perspective and, and uh, loyalist history perspective. And they had on Davy Adams, from who was one of the architects of the Good Friday Agreement, and, and, he, and they asked him what was his highlight of 2023. And he said, well, uh, the, the, my highlight is that it's now 2024. So, so I, think, I think we all live in that kind of hope, maybe. Um, Hannah, look, you're back in Ramallah, uh, and as I've kind of alluded to, you tend to go to, to places where there have been touch points. We've spoke to you before from Lebanon, from Afghanistan, from all other all other parts of the globe where where Ukraine as well but give me your sense 90 days well over 90 days now which is the longest conflict Israel's ever been engaged in by the way uh, which is you know should be of interest to people they've never had a had a conflict gone that go this long what is your sense of of things on the ground now and 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 what does that what might that mean in the in the the wider region uh, so I guess on the ground, I mean, things are not as tense as they were at the beginning of the war. I guess people have adjusted to a wartime economy. Um, you know, Jerusalem's a bit busier than it was before. It's not as deserted as it was at the beginning of the war. Back in the West Bank, there is a bit more movement between the West Bank and Israel, but it's still trickier to move uh, through, um, you know, between them. Uh, and it's actually very tricky to move around the West Bank without you know, for example, a car with Israeli license plates. Uh, if you are just a normal Palestinian with a Palestinian car, you know, your time for traveling between places that are normally very close, you know, is doubled, tripled, quadrupled. If you're actually getting to the place that you want to go, um, I'm in Ramallah. Things are, you know, this is, that's kind of the center, the political center of the West Bank. Uh, it's relatively calm. It's usually not touched. It's usually, you know, kind of somewhat insulated um, from the rest of the West Bank. But, you know, even in recent weeks, we've seen military, Israeli military vehicles in Ramallah. Uh, we saw um, raids on money changers in Ramallah. So there's definitely been an uptick uh, in encroachment on places that were usually somewhat protected. 
And yeah, like I mean, again, I spoke to uh, and you know Gareth Brown as well, who's lived in Ramallah for for quite a while, and he he kind of stresses that it's a it's a safer place than um, than. Uh, the the you know the general other areas in the West Bank where, where it can be, but we have seen these conflagrations that were were uh, new and it has escalated, and we have seen more arrests and more what what, uh, what we used to what the Irish used to call internment, <laughs> you know uh, it, the, the, these detainments which are done without any charge that are that are still take, taking place. Has that kind of subsided in the last little while, or or there's are the threats of that still continuing? No, there's definitely still um, Palestinians being detained in kind of record numbers. And again, people probably have heard a lot about the fact that the Red Cross haven't been allowed to visit the hostages in Gaza. Uh, there's protests against the Red Cross in Israel. You know, they're saying, you know, where is the Red Cross? Uh, you should be, you know, walking up to Hamas and, you know, demanding access to the hostages to give them food and medication. But at the same time, uh, since the 7th of October, the Red Cross has not had access to Palestinian prisoners who were detained uh, in Israeli detention centers. We have seen a dramatic decrease in the uh, deterioration in the conditions uh, that they're being held by. We know that people have been killed. Uh, they've been severely beaten. We know that people have lost weight because they're not being given adequate food. Uh, and again, we've also seen an uptick in Arab Israelis being detained in prison. If you're an Arab Israeli, you're an Israeli citizen. And therefore, if you are detained, you go to the civilian court system. If you're a Palestinian detained by the Israeli military, you go to a military court system where we don't have the same access to information or court records. But what we hear from the Arab Israeli testimony is, just, you know, beatings, uh, children being detained, um, you know, people dying from lack of medical care. Uh, so really, really worrying conditions. I think this is a really, I'm so glad you outlined that because it's, it's been a, it's been a, a, a less covered topic because obviously all eyes are on Gaza and what's been happening. But when you think about these administrative detentions that have been taking place and the, the treatment that's been meted out, we've, we know people have died. We know people have, are, are, and they're being malnourished. And we've actually seen, I believe, it was Ben Gavir yet again talking about, uh, boasting about not giving enough calories to make sure that um, that part of the punishment was was starvation in, in effect as well. So, I mean, they are saying the quiet part out loud. Uh, can I ask you, I know you've also visited Jerusalem a few times. You've been you've been in there. They're still after October 7th and, and the Hamas, the abhorrent Hamas attacks. There was a sense that, you know, that everybody was kind of, look, we have to do, we, we now have to go to war. We now have to have a war on Hamas. We now have to do this. But the the bring them home movement and that campaign seems to have lost more faith I put than with politically with the political system with Netanyahu to the point where we've seen them now visit Doha in, a, in an attempt to try and, um, you know, re re start negotiations for hostage release on the ba on the basis that their their own government seems to have failed am i am i reading too much into that uh well i would say a lot of those hostage visits are organized by the israeli foreign ministry so i would actually have thought that the israeli foreign ministry had, would have organized the visit of the hostages hostage families to qatar rather than them doing it of their own accord i just i can't see them the, all the visits I know of, it's been coordinated by the Israeli foreign minister. Like they organize the flights, they set up visits. You know, it's part of their outreach to these countries. So I think it's more likely that it, it was done with support from the Israeli government than just unilaterally. That said, there's a divergent position between what the host, the, 
the families of the hostages want, most of them. There is a a small group that maybe people have like seen interviews with um, where there are families who are, you know, from kind of radical settler families in uh, Hebron who, you know, have basically come out and said, you know, if I must sacrifice my son who is being held in hostage in Gaza for the Israeli state, I will choose the Israeli state. Um, so, you know, the, the families of the hostages are not one monolith. They do have slightly divergent views there. Um, but I think there's real fear after the assassination of Salah al-Aruri, who was a key interlocutor regarding the hostage negotiations for Hamas, um, who was killed in southern Beirut last week, that uh, there's going to be you know a, a, a significant postponement to the hostage negotiations. I think generally the view is they will restart this is not the end of the hostage deal. Like the whole point is to get a deal at some point, but uh, it's made them considerably more difficult, considerably more difficult to make contact with Hamas, uh, and you know to have you know the negotiations and talks that need to happen to reach a deal. Yeah, I think um, again, and then we see um, Secretary Blinken back in the air in the region again. You see him on on stage in in Doha as well, and you know trying to to get these things going. What do you make of this? Because the language, while not necessarily distance itself from from Israel, has perhaps maybe softened in a way that it, it almost looks like. Well, you know, earlier on the accusation would be leveled at at the United States, and in my opinion, again, only my opinion, uh, quite fairly, that they were that they were a party to what was taking par- taking place. Now the language seems to be a little bit more conciliatory and looking for some sort of uh, movement. There, what's your take on it? I mean, in terms of their language, they're clearly trying to distance themselves from what Israel is doing. But in terms of their actions, there doesn't seem to be any change. They've still um, used executive orders to suspend congressional oversight of you know, the transfer of military aid and arms to Israel. Um, that That's still continuing. Uh, they have not added conditions to their military aid. So, for example, two American senators, Democrat senators, uh, visited Rafa uh, crossing uh a few days ago over the weekend and they said you know there's clearly delays happening uh, on the on the Israeli side when they're inspecting age um, they're delaying stuff like you know birthing kits for women and water testing equipment um, and these delays are spoiling food and just le- clearly a deliberate tactic um, and you know one of them was talking about how you know if Israel's going to give military aid there should be conditions tied to that um, you know, regarding, you know, delivering humanitarian aid to areas under attack. Um, I think the idea that the US would give, you know, billions in military aid without any sort of kind of, uh, respect or kind of, I guess, kind of influence over the, the ultimate policy. I mean, it doesn't seem to, I mean, it, it would question, there's question marks over what exactly, uh, the US's policy is there or principles are. Yeah, I, 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 like, um, we've seen it so, so often, as, as you said, the, you know, you can say something publicly in front of the press, but as if it's, it's no well, it's all well and good to make public pronouncements, but if you're still actually, you know, sidestepping, um, the check marks and the US has their own laws that they're supposed to adhere to, like the Leahy laws that are supposed to say that they can, you know, make sure that anything they're being done, they're being sold, arms that they're selling are not being used for these purposes. And, you know, Israel doesn't, just doesn't seem to be uh, someone that they would consider actually um, putting putting implementing these laws about, and it is very difficult. But but it is also um, you know all in the, the light of that. 
that uh, South Africa's case taking Israel to the International Court of Justice on, of, for genocide, all of that makes it a bit more complicated for the US as well because they, they're they're clearly implicated in, in their actions. Um, you mentioned the Rafa crossing. You mentioned you're in Ramallah. There's an Irishman still at, around Rafa and he can't get out. Uh, and he's been told that from the Department of Foreign Affairs to deal with people in, in Ramallah, uh, Zakanaya. I mean... Uh, are, what is the situation as you understand it um, in terms of people still being evacuated? Is it is it happening? And and have you had any contact people, with the people? The people are definitely still being evacuated. Uh, as people, especially families abroad, as they raise money, I think they're also looking to get family members out, and if they can secure the money for visas, I, I, there is an issue that I think. Uh, I mean, Israel has always just kind of blocked some people's. Um, uh, permits to leave Gaza somewhat randomly. They did this before the war, you know, pe- children looking for medical attention, elderly parents trying to join children overseas. Uh, and I think they've cast a very, very broad net in terms of who they think might be somewhat connected uh, to Hamas uh, or one of the militant groups. And I mean, it's so wide that, I mean, just being a distant relative yeah. um, of... Maybe, maybe, know, having, uh, maybe having the wrong surname. The wrong surname is not helpful uh, and I think they have cast a wide net in terms of, you know, who they have decided is linked um, with uh, Hamas or not. And I mean, but w- when we say, you know, a distant relative, it's the same as saying, you know, all people from like the way kind of clan structures work in Gaza, uh, you know, families are massive, you know, they are, and they kind of often are kind of congregated in the same areas. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Halid al the Irish-Palestinian um father of two who, you know, lost his wife in the attack. I think there's something like 20,000 Alastals. Um, and again, you know, so really like, you know, a, a huge number of people who are kind of considered his family. Um, and so again, if we say, oh, you know, one or two are associated with Hamas, I mean, it's like saying, you know, one or two people from NACE, you know, yeah, are associated yeah, yeah, yeah. with the IRA. Therefore, are, are, are everyone from NACE I, is banned. Are you one of the Groves? Are you one of the Groves is from, from Cabra? Are you one of the Groves is from, you know, and I, again, it's, it's you know, there, there is there is that element of that. And I understand, but I also find it very difficult then because what we're, what we're saying here quietly is that Israel controls it, and yet it's the Egyptian border and and our government and and you know who are trying to be trying to do this. So it's really not. It's you know it's it's at it's at the uh, it's at the discretion of the Israeli government, and that is the that is the bottom line here. And, and it doesn't get it doesn't get said often enough. Yeah, I I mean like it, every so often it's worth yeah zooming out and just reminding everyone that Rafa has nothing to do with Israel's territory. And the fact that it is allowed to exercise control over this border crossing, it cannot do that without, you know, international support. Uh, you know, Egypt and Gaza's border should be not have nothing to do with Israel, but yeah, you know, and certainly not like who's allowed to leave or not. But in this case, it does. Yeah, I just I'm glad. Uh, just again, it's again something else that people lose sight of too, quite often. Um, just as someone who has gone and continues to go to areas where I would say, oh, please don't go. That's going to be dangerous. Um, and we've been witnessing like more journalists have died in the 90 plus days in Gaza than did in the entire war in Vietnam. We have seen, you know, some of the most heartbreaking scenes. 
you cannot um, you cannot understand how Wilde stays on his feet. You just can't understand how that man continues to report and go to work. And he is one of many. I myself knew a couple of people who are no longer with us. Um, I obviously I I don't know if you've heard the conversation I had with Rifa Alarir, who's no longer with us, and the con- and and and. His friend um, Rushdie Siraj and what happened to Rushdie and you know we talk about these people now in the past tense and they're no longer with us. As a journalist who has been freelance and doing this work, going in in, in areas, what do you, what's your overall sense of of first of all the the the, the journalist journalist the bravery of the journalists themselves and then maybe the the response from the international journalism. Yeah, I mean, I, I just personally have no idea how they do it. You know, I've done some, I guess, kind of controlled periods where things might have been quite dangerous, but very much like with the knowledge that, you know, this will be for a few hours and then I'll be in a safer place. You know, in Ukraine, you know, I was in Bakhmut, but that was, you know, a few hours and then out to somewhere that was safer. And then again, you know, even just being in Ukraine, you are in a, your, your, your senses are raised. Uh, and I noticed like, you know, you're not sleeping well. Um, you know, it takes you a few days when you leave Ukraine to kind of, you know, relax again, to not jump at like loud noises. And that was after, you know, I think when that I did that trip, that was a week, uh, December 2022. I just don't know how your nervous system continues. I don't know how you work. I don't know. Just, and I mean, like as a freelance journalist, you know, you deal with a lot of shit in terms of managing your stories and organizing anything. But I, I just, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how I would do it. I don't think I would do it. Uh, and, you know, if they weren't doing it, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm giving updates on their work a lot of the time, mm. like without the work they were doing, I, I wouldn't be able to give a lot of the comments that I do. Um, so, you know, I, just huge admiration. And I mean, maybe admiration is the wrong word because, you know, you shouldn't be admiring people for having to just deal with those kind of conditions, uh. And I think, yeah, someone did say, you know, while uh, Dadu was, you know, a Ukrainian journalist who kind of had lost his family like this and was continuing to report, you know, for BBC Ukraine or, you know, for Euronews, you know, he would be invited to Brussels. He'd be invited to Washington, D.C. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I find it. I, I was I was fortunate to be asked to speak very briefly in Leinster House before Christmas um, about the coverage uh, uh, they wanted a, a, a kind of um, media slash social media perspective on things and I stressed the heroes on the ground the people who we spoke who I continue to be in contact with every day as you continue to be in contact contact with every day people who are sitting going you know walking four kilometers to get connections to uh, to to try and get some sort of signal people who were sending e-sims to who are trying to distribute things like this all of these things and I am concerned and again I am concerned that there has been uh, a a kind of passive voice used in in much of the Western reporting around this, which has not helped the cause of standing up for, you know, uh, collegiality amongst journalists, in my opinion. And actually, I hadn't heard about that Leinster House meeting. What what was there? Was there? It was. What was their criticism, or did they? It was. Well, I was. I spoke after a woman from Jewish Voices for Peace, and um, and there was another gentleman um from um from Jerusalem actually contributing about, uh, and they were talking about. It was mostly about media, but it was also particularly 
pertinent given the where say Facebook and well Meta now and all of these businesses are based. So we're saying that you know censorship online of journal of Palestinian journalists was happening, and they were trying to stop you know draw attention to it from a Dublin perspective. So it was it was very much a, a case of. Um, I suppose we were supposed to focus mostly on on social media and how it can be censored and, or, you know, accounts were being shut down and people were finding it difficult to get their voices out. Um, but I did obviously raise the, the, the issue. There was, I raised the issue personally there when I had the opportunity of the journalists who were um, losing their lives and how they were the real heroes. Um, and I, I even had a low key the the rapper had given me things to read, so I read it, you know. So, uh, so I got I got as much in in my few minutes that I could possibly get, you know. I'm not sure. I'm going to be honest. I'm I'm a bit careful with some what some of the stuff low key says. I don't. I some of it's messy, oh, and some of it's not. But no, no, he's. I would. I would say he's a and rapper. And I also, yeah, but he's going. I just I have like some of the stuff is obviously spot on and completely right. Some of the stuff and the way he says it. I, I don't agree with and it's not always accurate. And I, there's one or two times where he's kind of thrown out a few tweets that I target organizations I know. For example, there was this uh, organization that actually Ireland supports Abraham uh, initiatives in Israel. And it's like, you know, a kind of cross community, you know, Arab, Israeli and Palestinian uh, organization. And he was just throwing comments, you know, trying to say it was this kind of, you know, um, no kind of spy organization I, I, or whatever. I think he I think he linked someone someone who was married to someone who was involved with some yes. And he, I don't Mint Press which supports his podcast is it's it definitely pushes Russian propaganda. It's definitely an Assad apologist. Like and I this is and I noticed this in Ukraine before. This is years ago. Sorry not years ago, but during Ukraine I read some of the stuff and I was like this is this, not this, but, accurate. Again when you put a when we talk about, but what, some of the stuff is, but some of it's definitely. But I how mean, is it? How how were, is his opinions any more biased than some of the some of the stuff from the other side? That's the issue, you know. So you have to kind of wade through it. And and the point I allowed him to make uh, when I read his piece was was that Ireland's um, long history of anti-Semitism as well was what we raised, you know, and how we've had this problem in Ireland. It wasn't. It was wasn't very wasn't much in terms of the. Um, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't the typical comment, I suppose, is what I would say. But but sorry, so, sorry, Loki talked about Ireland's anti-Semitism. Ireland's anti-Semitism, and then he tur- and and we ha- and we had to re- reference that through the prism of how it's been held uh, to an issue whereby, so you know, unfortunately, the former Justice Minister Alan Shatter is now accusing all any any criticisms now of of harking back to Ireland's history of anti-Semitism, and that's just not true. Oh, it's so, yeah. And do you know something? I saw one of those tweets online and I, I almost did a kind of quick response tweet and instead, and I would urge anyone who's genuinely interested in this topic, there's two books that are worth reading. One is uh, called uh, The History of Irish Jews by Louis Hyman, who was born in Dublin in 1912, went to Trinity, um, and he actually emigrated to Israel in 1935. And he goes through the history of Irish Jews, uh, talks about the links, for example, Daniel O'Connell, met regularly with, you know, Jewish activists uh, in Britain when they were both groups were looking for emancipation, uh, Jewish groups in New York fundraised for Irish famine relief. Uh, there's lots of different links. And then actually, like, there, there's actually a lot to unpick. And there is obviously some cases of anti-Semitism, but genuinely, I mean, comparatively, 
the the language is always we understand oppression. You know, mm. and, and actually, till I went back and looked at the history, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to find. But it, and then, sorry, the second book is Dermot Kyo, which I think is uh, it's like Irish Jews uh, anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, but genuinely really interesting. And if people are feeling a bit unsure of how to respond to some of these calls, the best thing is to just read, so you actually know. You know, where does Ireland fall? You know, it's not, it's not, I don't think you should get to the point where you just flat out deny this, that there's ever, never been any anti-Semitism in Ireland. You know, look at the Limerick pogrom. Uh, and again, you know, obviously some of the policies around rejecting Jewish refugees in World War II are not ones that are necessarily uh, what we want I, I, uh, I, to be known I for. The simple, the simplest thing I do is I actually just ask my Jewish friends. I ask them as well. You know, there's there there is a very small Jewish community in Ireland. They're not all um they're they're not all of the same uh, opinion on some of these. They some of them have more of affinities for the state of Israel than others. But I find across the spectrum that we're able to have a conversation about it and Ireland's checkered past when it comes to anti-Semitism. So I, I I'm absolutely like only only this morning I was having a conversation with 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 someone in in relation to I don't know if you saw the hilarious piece yesterday where the far right decided that because Donegal catch was Alaskan Pollock uh, it wasn't actually from Donegal and it was a Jewish capitalist conspiracy so I um, you know it, it, it there's a there is this nut, nutty um element but I'm laughing but it shouldn't it's not really that funny because at the bottom of a lot of this it is anti-semitic you know that's what that's the truth of it um look we've probably we could, we could probably do a whole other conversation there uh, another day if you don't mind I'd like to um I'd like to to focus on some of the issues we've touched on earlier you talked about people you know that the amount of children who have been killed the amount of children who have lost limbs and now the amount of people who are um, losing their lives because of access to what we would have considered routine medication. Uh, is this now a second secondary form of punishment? Uh, definitely. And I mean, like uh, several times the numbers that have already died could die over the winter period if aid isn't rapidly stepped up, if, you know, toilets are not provided, if showers and basic sanitary conditions are not, you know, allowed to be established. Uh, I think in terms of the targeting of the chil- of children, um, the number of children who've had to have their limbs amputated, I think it's worth noting, and it's, it's something I've noticed kind of reporting on this over the last few weeks, there is a big emphasis on, you know, and we heard this from Isaac Herzog, who is, you know, not, you know, I would say naturally a radical Israeli politician, but since the war has definitely come out with statements, you know, there's no innocent people in Gaza, you know, written his name on a rocket that was destined for Gaza, done things that are, you know, uh, not, you know, coming from the more moderate place that he would have normally been kind of viewed as coming from. He'd be viewed uh, as, a li- he, as a liberal in some ways. That's, he yeah. And, uh, but, you know, he's been talking about, look, we found all these like school books, you know, uh, you know, about, you know, teaching children about jihadism and terrorism. And, you know, there's been a lot of rhetoric about UNRWA schools teaching terrorism to Palestinian children and, you know, ta- Palestinian children are being taught to kill Israelis. And I just think when people hear this language, and I, I think some of those people can be a bit confused about why are they hearing this? Why is there this emphasis on UNRWA schools and you know, being Hamas fa- facilitated? And I think this, it's a kind of gradual normalization of children as targets. You know, if children are learning, you know, are being taught to be terrorists, well, then surely they're, they're legitimate targets. If, you know, children's school books have, you know, 
references. I'm sorry, I'm not saying they they necessarily do have references to you know violent jihad or something against Israelis. Well, then the safest thing to do target children, and they're not expressly saying that, but that is the implicit mm. message when you hear this reference to education in Gaza. Because again, I, I've he- and I've been hearing it more and more recently. Uh, I, you know, and this idea that we have to re-educate Palestinians because obviously at the moment their education is telling them to, you know, k- kill Jewish people. Uh, and again, I think we have to be really careful about, you know, how much of this we take in and, uh, and this idea that, you know, schools are legitimate targets and school children are also, you know, legitimate targets in this, you know, fight against terrorism. The last thing I want to touch on is the, you know, obviously... Hamas is 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 an Islamic organization. It's also the the administration in in Gaza. It's also a military organization. It, it's many things, but at the same time, you know some of the more secular movements. There are there have been meetings, and you've probably aware of them. You know of, of and I can't even do the range of lettering that they have. You know the PLFP and the and all, uh, that they're trying to actually work about for what might actually how Gaza could be run. In after is this awful phrase of the day after this this ends? Have you been hearing anything around that? Yeah, so at a, I I was at a briefing with Elon Levy, the Israeli government spokesperson, this morning, uh, and you know he has definitely. Um, I mean, so we we heard statements from some members of the Israeli government that you know Gazans should be transferred and you know they all need to leave and we need to have Israeli settlements back in Gaza. The official line from Elon Levy is that uh, Gaza will be ruled by Gazans, that, you know, Gazans will not be forcibly transferred anywhere. At some point, Gazans displaced from northern Gaza will be allowed to return to their homes. Um, As in my concern with some of the language he was using, like Gaza will be ruined by Gazans, it's actually the other reading is that of that is that they're kind of also laying laying out perhaps indirectly opposition to unity between the governments of Gaza and the West Bank. That would be my concern in that language that on one hand, it appears very you know, clean. That, okay, Gaza will be ridden by Gazans. But I do wonder if that's actually uh, also uh, that, you know, that's not a Palestine, Palestine being ruled by Palestinians. And, you know, the pathway to a viable Palestinian state comes through unity between Gaza and the West Bank. Without that, you know, there there cannot be a viable Palestinian state. Uh, we're hearing, you know, again, Israel will not be paying for the reconstruction of Israel. It will be other Arab states, uh, Arab states who've said they want, you know, a viable Palestinian state or that to be on the agenda before they start funding reconstruction. Um, so, and again, you know, Ireland is obviously also looking at ways or it has been that the EU would be involved and how it could support that structure. Yeah, I I, I think it's um it's really scary, Hannah, in a way, where boy when when Ukraine happened, we saw a flood of international money to talk already about rebuilding Ukraine. And now we see that this is not the case when it comes to Gaza. You mentioned Elon Levy, you mentioned your, your um, reticence around some of the stuff Loki says. That guy has a checkered past and some of the stuff he has actually put up and when it's fact-checked was found to not be, um, to not have any merit, uh, particularly around some of the 
abhorrent and disgusting events of October 7th. They were bad enough without him having to, uh, you know, create some false narratives. However, um, I will say I'm deeply concerned that, you know, he's, it's great to hear they're saying the official line is that there will be, you know, Gaza will be, will, will not be effective, effectively not be ethnically cleansed. However, we see the, the statements from the likes of Smotrich, from the likes of Ben Gavir. We see, you know, pamphlets going around of, a beach, a beachfront property is just is just over the horizon for you. So there is also a different school of thought within the state of Israel and indeed within senior offices in the government. And obviously, one of my other concerns would be that the rhetoric around forcible transfer of Gaza is almost to distract attention that ethnic cleansing is happening in the West Bank. That you know, huge amounts of land have been lost there from Palestinian families. But again, you know. If, you know, the international community, quote unquote, succeeds in stopping Gazans from being forcibly transferred from Gaza, is that enough of a perceived win that they kind of almost forget that, you know, over a thousand Palestinians have lost huge, like huge swaths of land in the West Bank? You know, is there a tactic going on here? Um, so, I mean, it's, it's always like very complicated to know what the aim or the focus of the messaging is what's a tactic what's you know a distraction you know what is the ultimate game yeah, I, I look we'll, we'll we'll leave it there and thanks so much again for your time i always appreciate chatting to you i always love the fact that like i mean you've been you've been out in the air that region for years now as long as i've known you and um it's always great to get that insight of someone who 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 moves between the the different areas and, and talks to people in in the different communities and i really appreciate it and, I, and obviously people should check out continue to check out your work and i'm glad to see it's been recognized uh in as i said much bigger pr- platforms than this little outlet but you continue to to put up with tony groves every now and then hannah so i really appreciate it and 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 do do try and um not get yourself into any trouble if that's okay sure thanks Danny. no problem listen folks we'll be back we mentioned zach and i um once we get a connection to zach i'll be talking to him and loe el basani the the um, nasa engineer who put the helicopter on mars uh, so frustrated is he at his inability to get his parents, who are German citizens, out through the Rafa crossing, that he's currently in transit to try and make his way to Gaza. So that will be a very interesting um, tale when we get to tell it. Uh, hoping to connect with Loe shortly. Talk to you all very, very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Subscribe now on Patreon.